You are listening to Master Coaching with Ajit, a podcast that inspires coaches to impact lives of their clients more meaningfully. I am Coach Ajit, and I'm known for coaching high performers, entrepreneurs, and leaders. I'm also a serial entrepreneur and author of many books. On this podcast, I am answering your burning questions. I'm also demonstrating and deconstructing behind-the-scenes coaching sessions. I'm very curious because I've heard women talk about it. Mm. I'm not a woman, so I have no way if <laughs> wait, I say wait, this, wait. I just... You're not? Yeah. <laughs> no, and I do not identify as one either. So <laughs> if if I say something wrong, just say that you, you don't know shit. But I'm curious about what you said <laughs> yeah. because I've heard many women talk uh-huh, about it uh-huh. where they have said something to mm-hmm. similar to what you said, which is I've had good relationships with men, but I find it hard right. to connect with women or I feel threatened by other women or right. I feel I'm pitted against other women. Right. And then I meet, of course, the other category where they're like all women friends, their sisterhood is like right. loving and everything. And you're like, wow, that's amazing. But then they can't meet that, a man. Yeah, it <laughs> seems like, it seems like you're right. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh, they, they're right? not yeah. with someone. Right. Or they're already married and they already have a relationship and they're great sisterhood. Yeah. Their wound is then around probably the masculine and trusting the masculine. So, so tell me a little bit more about what's happening here because clearly you just hosted a whole retreat around this. So you have an understanding of, a, why that happens, and B, what can we do about it? Yeah, well, I would say that globally we're, we're afflicted with all these, I would call them like psychological neuroses, and they affect large swaths of people, and a lot of it's subconscious. So, you know, it starts from when we're young. Boys are taught not to cry. Girls are taught to be a good little girl. There's these really subtle things that come in as soon as we come out, and there's a famous philosopher, John Locke, and he had this theory called tabula rasa, which is this idea that when we're born, we're a blank slate. And then we get drawn on by society. We get drawn on by our parents and our behavior gets shaped. And a lot of this is really, it's unconscious because it's like, you're a tea bag. You're just steeped in it from the moment that you're born. So I think that what we're seeing, particularly with women, is a symptom of, of our culture. You know, it's there's so many overlapping nuance with it. Capitalism, the economy, sex, power, the way that all of these things overlay just create human behavior. That's just the way that it is. So with myself, from a very young age, I remember being looked at, right? Just like people gazing at me, mainly men's gaze, but I didn't have the words for it. I didn't have the understanding for it. But imagine just somebody looking at you like you're a a pretty object from like Mm. 11, 12 years old. And we're still developing our egos at that point. So we are getting information about who we are from the reflections of the world. So I'm actually building a personality based on how people around me are treating me at that time. So... When you grow up in a world where how you look is valued more than who you be, that shapes you. And that definitely sent me on a tangly journey of finding out who I was because what the world was telling me I was worth didn't really match what I was feeling inside. And I had some wild and wonderful years living in New York City and (laughs) dating lots and just experiencing culture. 
And I remember, I can look back now with a lot of love for that version of me and see how I was just trying to cope and do the best that I could with the tools that I had. But I understand why men sometimes feel like women are manipulative, right? These things go hand in hand because my tools were the way that I looked. And I'd walk in a room and before I even said anything, people had ideas about me. Maybe men on a subconscious level wanted to have sex with me and women on a subconscious level, there was a little bit of jealousy or something triggered, but it's not spoken. It's just felt in the energy. So all of this kind of plays into the texture of our relationships. And so for me, I never had an issue making friends, but it was lacking the depth that I wanted. And part of that was not really trusting that other people actually wanted me to shine, that other women wanted me to be successful. Part of that was my insecurity and part of that was what I was receiving and creating in tandem with them. So my process of healing that has been like really looking at what's mine, what's not, and how do I want to show up in response. So from what I'm understanding, what I'm hearing is there's a inherent or somewhat unsaid jealousy between the men that leads to not having a sisterhood? Is that, am I understanding? There, that absolutely can be part of it, but it's so individual for every woman. I have heard a lot of stories from women about middle school and high school and how girls treat each other, right? And we, if we had a, a health class in high school, they probably told you about bullying and how boys are more prone to bullying each other physically where girls are more prone to bullying each other emotionally. Because if you think about it, that's that's a little biological too. Like if you're a man and you're the largest person in the room, you're going to use what you have, which is your physical strength. Mm-hmm. If you're a woman and you're not the strongest physical person in the room, you're going to have to draw on other resource, which is your intellect, mm-hmm. your physical beauty, and your emotional intelligence. So that's why women often can use that and it can get distorted and it can be manipulative and hurtful. Mm. Does that also make women more in tune with who they truly are? I think it's different for everyone, but you hear about a woman's intuition, Mm -hmm. right? So it's like, as a woman, I feel like I get extra senses about things, like just feelings. Mm -hmm. Oh, I should do that. I shouldn't do that. The energy of that situation felt a little off. You know, have Mm -hmm. you ever had someone say something really nice to you, Mm -hmm. but it didn't feel right? Mm -hmm. You know, it almost felt like they were maybe trying to get something out of you or that the relationship was commodified. Mm -hmm. They're like really overly nice, but you're just like, why did that feel a little graspy Mm. to me? So as a woman and just as a highly empathic individual, I'm really fascinated by paying attention to not only what's said, but the energy underneath what's said. And this has really helped me also a great deal in my coaching practice. Beautiful, beautiful. I'm I'm just still very curious about it. So women tend to, because of said reasons, mm-hmm. uh, have some sort of mistrust, jealousy, mm-hmm. however you want to call it, mm-hmm. with other women. Mm-hmm. And that clearly must impact their careers and their life going around, right? And of course, it does not help with the relationships per mm-hmm. se. What is it that one must look out for as a female, anybody that was listening to this podcast to go, you know what, I should look out for these signs that mm-hmm. I may be 
wounded or I may have these things that I have developed over time, what is something that would give a gauge to a person? Right. And and I think this is across the board for all mm-hmm. for and all. Do you people. think it's an American thing? It's also a, ooh, that a would be hard for me to say. I, I've only spent a, a little bit of time living in other countries, but I'm inclined to say no. Although culturally, I think it's more pervasive here. I couldn't speak for all cultures, but I do think because we're globally, we're all influenced by each other too with the social mm-hmm. media. Mm-hmm. So we're all kind of getting tastes of the same thing, but. I asked that question because I was born in India. Yeah, tell and me. In India, it's actually the opposite. I think. Wow. Is that we have like I have friends that were my friends when we were thirteen years old, mm-hmm. fourteen years old, and mm-hmm. they're still my friends. Like right. we talk like pretty much every week. We just live in different countries, right. so not as often. Right. But if they were like in the town, we'll probably be seeing each other every other day or something like that. Mm-hmm. And same is true for my girlfriend's friends. Like I, I'm again, I don't have a sister or anything to really speak to that. But they are like, yeah, they have their girlfriends that they hang out with, and then they're friends when we all come together and we all hang out. Mm-hmm. But their girlfriends are like their girlfriends, mm-hmm. and I've only heard of this phenomenon hmm. once I start interacting with. The rest of the world. Now, I've not really observed anything particular European or Latin, uh, mm-hmm. but I definitely hear this very commonly ever since I've interacted with people living in the United States. Right. Yeah. In America. Yeah, absolutely. That's a really fascinating point. And of course, I can only really speak from my personal experience and say that it's definitely something that I've dealt with, struggled with, and made peace with. But as far as things to look out for in general, I'm always paying attention to how I feel when I'm interacting with people before I interact with them, during interacting with them, and then afterward. So I might have an idea, a concept, a schema that somebody's my friend. And that almost makes it really easy for me to let things slide off my back because I love them and they're my friend, right? But when we are entering a situation where we're repeatedly leaving feeling maybe not as great as we did when we walked in, regardless of what we want to label the person, that would be an indicator to me that there's something to look at. Now, it doesn't mean that person is bad. And I want to be very clear about that. It could mean that there's needs that I have that I'm not expressing. It could mean that there's resentments that I have that I'm not expressing. And one of the things we can do is just develop our skills for nonviolent communication when we feel something in real time, as close as we can to real time to just name it. Something as simple as, hey, I'm feeling a little strange right now. How are you feeling? Or I'd like to be more connected with you than I'm feeling right now. How would you like to connect deeper together? Would that be all right with you? And, and really creating an invitation And sometimes people will take it and sometimes people will not take it. And for me, that's all data. That's information. It's sad. The reason in the past that I didn't express to people what my truth was is because on some deep subconscious level, I'm afraid of losing them, right? So what if I say this thing? What if I really express my needs and they reject me or they blame me even worse? Or what if they say, no, I'm not feeling that. That's just you. And then I feel even more alone in my experience. So oftentimes it becomes easy to avoid those things. I'm just not going to create conflict. But then we find ourselves surrounded by disingenuous relationships where we're not able to be our full selves. Wonderful. Wonderful. My curiosity is taking me to understanding 
yes, that's a container. And what I've experienced, at least in my, and not necessarily related to female friends, but just friends in general, Mm -hmm. is where I found myself in situations where I'm with people that don't give me energy. Mm. And Mm -hmm. I've kind of almost done like an exercise where I look at all the friends that I have and I go, okay, what do I feel after Mm -hmm. a conversation Mm -hmm. with them? Or most of the time, not not all the time, but most of the time. I go, most of the time, I feel a five after or a 10 after. Uh You know, based on that, I I realized that there were certain people in my life that I was like, it feels like that I am doing the work hair and it feels like and it's no I have no way to really prove nothing. Right. But I also found that the moment I said to take them and say, all right, I don't need to interact mm-hmm. with this person because mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it's my life. I get to choose the mm-hmm. friends I want to hang out mm-hmm. with. It actually made my life better. Yes. Like I had more energy every day. I had more drive every day. I had more ease of my emotions every day. I was able to regulate better. I was able to enjoy life better. And I was like maybe that's just one thing that we all need to do at some point is to sit down and go, okay, what are these people that are in my life and are they giving me energy or are they taking energy from mm-hmm. me? If they're taking energy, maybe it is time for us to either have that conversation right. or move on from right. that individual. Are we in a a circuit together that's symbiotic? Because mm-hmm. there's always going to be give and take in relationship, right? But I think what you're referring to is like an energy vampire where it's just every time you come away, you're feeling depleted and you're left wondering, what am I receiving out of this friendship? I'm curious for you when you did that, was there blowback for you? Did people get upset? Did people start getting needy and being, oh, I haven't heard from you in a while? Did you experience anything as a result of kind of cleaning up your, refining your, your relationships? Yes, and So it was a little bit, but I wouldn't say it was significant because I'm certain that they understood or they, mm-hmm. they also probably had the same feeling because mm-hmm. I was disconnected when right. you're not feeling the the love or you're not feeling the bond, people right. would go, oh, feels like the person that I'm talking to is disconnected. So I don't think my best version was available to them anyways. Mm. Mm. And knowingly or unknowingly, consciously or unconsciously, but I think that that kind of led to an easy send-off most of the time than a difficult one. Right. Also, I think just as men, I think it's just a, a little bit easier because we... Like, at least my understanding is that women really follow up really strongly. Mm. Men don't. Mm. Like, it's the same crisis that you're talking about in female friendships. It's Mm. the same crisis in male friendships, Mm. at least in this part of the world. While I have a friend that or friends that are my friends since I was 13, 14, 15 years old, if I was to go, okay, how many friends do I have with that depth of Mm. relationship here? Two. Hmm. Right. And that's where it is. It's interesting because I have heard them say things and not do things. Right. So here's what Hmm. happened. And I remember moving to Austin and meeting the first few people because I was building a new community. I knew like few people that were like business relationships, not even like personal relationships. And when I would meet them, I would be like, yeah, I would love to build a community here. Right. And I would love to, you know, hang out with people that have the same values or trying to do the same things, you know, and just see a parents because that was one more thing that I have kids. I want to hang out more with parents because it's easy because the kids can just play together. And I was lucky that that's how some of my friends are that because our parents were friends, we became friends and we love each other. Mm-hmm. So they would go, yes, I would love a community. And this person may be living in Austin, many of such individuals may be living in Austin for 10 years, 15 years. So long enough time to have their own community. Right. Right. And I was like, yeah, they were like, yeah, I miss community too. I only meet people from business, blah, blah, blah. I was like, great. Let's follow up. We should be friends. Like you're looking for a community. I'm looking for a community. We kind of jive. That's why we're meeting right now. So let's hang out. And then I would approach these individuals and it would always be that there's some work thing that they were doing. Mm -hmm. And I was like, 
that's okay by me. I'm not going to like force you in a corner here. But at some point I realized that it's everybody says they want a community and everybody's fearful of something. I know I've never really went ahead to try to figure out why, because it's not that now if you meet them and you go, no, now they have a community, somebody else that you were just not a good friend. No, they're still the same dialogue. Like if I meet them once in a while, huh. they're like, yeah, I'm looking to build a community. You should invite huh. me to the next thing. I was like, I'm not going to invite you. I already Ooh. invited you like 10 times. Did you actually say that? No, not to them. Uh-huh. Because again, that's not a relationship we have anymore, right? right? So right. It's, and I'm not trying to build a men's group. <laughs> so right. I'm like, I don't need everybody in the group. Right. I only want people who are aligned and who right. would actually go, oh, yes, that's something that I want and I'm willing to work for it. Because mm-hmm. it's not like any relationship, it's work. Mm-hmm. It's not going to just happen for you. Right. You have to do something about it. Right. So I know that's a crisis also in male friendships, at mm-hmm. least the people that I've met, some of them, not all of them, some of them, where they do not have childhood friends and they even give that explanation by saying oh you know what because I was trying to be successful and my friends were all drinking beer so I decided I'll quit all my friendships like well or you could have helped them Hmm. not drink beer Mm. Uh, or you could have taken some of them alongside your journey. Mm. I mean, all of us have ups and downs. It's mm-hmm. not like every day is perfect day for Haley or mm-hmm. every day is perfect day for Ajit. Yeah. There are good days, there are bad days, good months and bad months, good right. years and bad years. Right. And you help your friend through that journey is mm-hmm. how you maintain a friendship. Mm-hmm. It's like saying, I'll quit on my partner because they're having a bad month. Mm-hmm. No, you mm-hmm. don't do that if mm-hmm. you really love them. Right. You go, oh, I'm going to be with you for this month right. and we're going to do this together. Right. Which is also why, at least in my experience, uh, what has happened is now a lot of my friends are business people, even if they started as people who were doing jobs because, well, I am their friend. So they get to talk to somebody who has a very different experience of life. And a lot of them came into similar industries or different related industries because, well, we are friends. We are all going to grow together. Mm -hmm. That is what I love about some, uh, some of the hip-hop artists that I got <laughs> exposed to when I came here. I didn't know that was the backstory. But I think Jay-Z took all of his friends along and Kevin Hart huh. has taken all of his friends along. I, love I was that. like, that's what a real friendship right. looks like. It's like, I know you're not as great as or not tangentially <laughs> doing the same thing that I am and I might be more a public face, right. but you have your skills. That's why we are friends, mm-hmm. right? Uh, you may not be a great comedian, but you might be a great real estate person and right. let's do it together then, right. you know? There's a um, genuine desire to lift each other up. Yes. It's a genuine desire to yes. see each other shine, not just, I like the idea of being friends with you. And, yeah. you know, and so I'm going to say yes, but I'm not going to follow through. And that's where you're finding people getting kind of stuck in their loops. They like the idea of deep friendships, but like you said, they don't actually know what it means to be in a deep friendship. They haven't gained yet the skills and the tools for that level of intimacy, which includes following through on what you say you're going to do, because that's trust. If you promise me something, or if we have an agreement, is a better way of saying it. If we have an agreement and you don't hold up your end of the agreement, I don't want to make agreements with you anymore. And that's very fair. So tell me more. The reason why I was bringing that up is because I've seen a version of that happen for men as well. Mm -hmm. And you talked about how jealousy or hurtness that might have happened for females Mm -hmm. could have led to not building deep, meaningful friendships within women. Mm -hmm. What is it that you see Mm -hmm. that a person must consider at this point now that they've identified I don't have enough deep, meaningful friendships or I feel like I'm feeling the energy drain every time I meet my friends. So even if... Technically, I have a deep, meaningful friendship. Right. It's not what you would call a sisterhood right. right, or a brotherhood or whatever that might be. What is it that you would suggest somebody to think about, reflect on, work with? Mm. 
Yeah, that's a really great question. Well, first of all, if we don't choose what we do want to do, we're at the risk of just falling victim to whatever is in our immediate field being what our experience is. And what I mean is, if you're choosing everything, you're not choosing anything. And I went through a period of time this year where I had hundreds of friends who I would call friends. But why was there something in me that wasn't satisfied yet? I'm getting invited to all these very fun, cool events. I'm going to things three or four times a week. And there's this feeling inside me, this isn't meeting me. And what I realized is I was deeply searching for that community. And in my searching, the behavior was to go from one thing to the next going, is this it? Is this is Maybe this is it. Maybe this is it. And what I needed at least was to get quiet with myself. And why that's scary is because when you're in the position of looking for community and you hear somebody like I'm suggesting right now, suggesting to sit with yourself, that seems like the opposite of what you need, right? I've been alone for so long. What I need is community. And it's that really that deep self-inquiry process, that process of determining why you want community. What is it that you really are trying to do for yourself. For me, it was depth of connection. And just it wasn't just connection. It was I was looking for a certain level of intimacy that my life did not have space for. So I was spinning my tires in the mud. So until I could be comfortable being uncomfortable, really sitting with myself and stripping away all the noise, for a while, I just turned everything down. And I just sat with myself. I looked at why I'm here on planet earth? What do I want to do with my life? What am I aligned with? What's my why? And as my mentor, Neil Donald Walsh says, and what does this have to do with the agenda of my soul? So asking myself that question whenever an opportunity for an ecstatic dance or a really cool fancy party would come up, I'd go, yeah, but what does this have to do? with the agenda of my soul. If I could give myself a clear answer that felt resonant, I would go. And if not, I wouldn't because this was the process of discerning and trimming the fat for my life so that the space for the people that I was really holding out for, that they could actually come in. Beautiful. And as you discovered that, did your curiosity also take you to what would a deep friendship look like or mean? As I discovered that, did my curiosity take me to wondering what a deep friendship would mean? I think that I didn't know exactly what it would look like, but I had a sense of what it would feel like because I had had enough experiences of moments and conversations with people where I felt connected and that we were meeting each other on a deep heart level. It wasn't performative. It wasn't, oh, how are you? Good. Yeah, I'm, everything in my life is great. It's, I'm super successful. It's blowing up. That's great too. And I want to be there to celebrate my friends as they shine. But what I was really interested in is what are you most afraid of right now? What's feeling hard? What's terrifying you? You know, what's, what's something that you, you don't feel safe sharing with most people that you're really in the blender with right now? It was those kinds of questions that I was interested in knowing and in sharing about myself. But I was really looking to know that somebody could hold the depth of me 
without judging. Beautiful. That question requires, or that depth of conversation requires vulnerability. Mm-hmm. Right? It's not yes. something that you have in the first conversation. Some right. people do, but then mm-hmm. I doubt the vulnerability of such individuals because they can go immediately to that place that feels a little bit fake to me. <laughs> At least I'm talking about my experience mm-hmm. of life, right? And because of that, wouldn't it take a hot minute for somebody to get there? Mm. Mm-hmm. And if it's going to take a hot minute, because you also talked about, which is very interesting to me and I, I think is really powerful to share, mm-hmm. is just going to the next event is not going to get you deep friendships. Right. Right. It'll create acquaintances. You'll right. know people. Right. But how do you go from that right. to that? Yeah, so I can share about the experience of meeting my best friend one year ago. Because when I was coming in, I was in a pretty broken place. I was in a relationship wherein we were fighting every single day, a romantic relationship. I had lost all zest for my work. I wasn't feeling creative. And I was getting really hard on myself because I wasn't productive. And I just was watching kind of all areas of my life sort of crumble and shrivel up and decay and feeling very jaded. And I'm, I met this woman, her name is Danny. I met her at a party and she was staring at me from across the room. <laughs> but her eyes were bright and curious. And I turned around and I looked at her. She's looking at me, kind of deer in the headlights almost. And I waved her over. And it was so adorable in that moment. She looked behind her shoulder and she was like, me? I was like, yeah, come on over here. And we were standing in front of this fireplace. This was in Sedona in a beautiful home. It was one of our friend's birthday parties. And we just got to talking. She said, you probably don't remember me, but we met down at Soltara, which is an ayahuasca center that I was living at when I first launched my podcast. She goes, I was a guest. We didn't speak, but I saw you and I listened to your podcast and I thought it was really sweet. And we just got to talking. And then I just had this intuition. I thought, do you want to go somewhere private and talk? a little bit more deeply. And that was my initial invitation. I might not always offer that, but I was really in tune with what I was feeling in that moment, which was this genuine desire to specifically connect more deeply with her. So we ended up going off into one of the side bedrooms and we stayed there for the entire party. It was a five, six hours that we spent just talking on the bed like little girls at a sleepover. And during those six hours, I was very armored at first because I was dealing with a lot of hurt, pain in my relationship. I didn't know this person. But there were a couple things that I said. And I looked to her waiting for the reaction I normally get from other people. And her reaction was totally different. I felt her presence. She didn't want me to hurry up. She didn't want me to finish faster. There was a genuine curiosity about my experience that I could feel. And when I would finish speaking... She wouldn't immediately jump back in. We would just linger there in the space of what had been shared from our hearts. So I knew there was something really, really special there. And presence was a deep part of it and is a deep part of cultivating friendships. Now, another thing I learned was after that first night, our friendship was formed. And the next day I felt very vulnerable because I had shared with her some things I'd never shared with anybody, much less a stranger. There was one point I was crying into her arms and she was holding me almost like a little baby. And I had said something 
Like I, I've never felt this safe with a woman. And I think at that point, I said, not even with my own mother. So there was that deep, deep wound and almost fearfulness of being held. It was like the child in me wanted it, but I was also afraid that was going to come back to bite me. And she just, she just held it. I talked about how uncomfortable sometimes I feel when I walk into a room and I sense people sizing me up in whatever way. Maybe it's a positive way. Maybe it's a negative way. People project us up and down all the time. And the challenge is how do we hold our own energy regardless of what people think? So I had shared with her my challenge of a lot. I'm in the podcasting industry. A lot of podcasters are male (laughs) in the circuit. So I'm constantly meeting men at events and their girlfriends there. And I'm really curious about what the guy's saying because he's the one that I might professionally want to collaborate with. But then I also feel this woman here and I'm not wanting her to feel ignored. Sometimes I think I'm perceiving judgment, but I'm trying to figure out if it's my own insecurity. And then I feel angry because I think, well, I'm interested in talking to this person. I shouldn't have to overextend myself to make this person feel better. But yet I want to. I want all of us to be able to get along. So there's so much tension that I was expressing to her in that first day. And the the morning after, I felt like I had a little bit of a vulnerability hangover. And so that's the point at which people can just say, we shared an experience, we shared a moment of connection, and then maybe it doesn't become anything. But I turned to her and I said, I don't think I've ever been that intimate with anyone without having sex with them. You know, like that was so intimate. And I feel a little strange today. And I'm really excited to be your friend. It's really important to me that we cultivate this. And I named it right off the bat. That's the agreement, right? That's the offer. That's the invitation. And she said, I really want to be your friend too. And so it was like, great, what does that look like for us? And we just started to develop our own set of agreements. And that's really important because a lot of times relationships can go south because people are making assumptions that's based off of expectations of what a friend should do. And even what you were saying with like men maybe not being as great as at following up, I have to say, I fall in that category. I've always been that way as far as attachment styles. I'm more of an avoidant. I tend to find myself burdened by, or I used to tend to find myself burdened by a feeling of, oh, I got to keep up with everybody. You know, I'm like juggling a million balls and it just kind of all feels like an energetic drain rather than something that's feeding me. So I've been working with my attachment style as well. My avoidant, like when I get overwhelmed, the propensity was to just unplug from everybody. And I think oftentimes that would leave people in my life feeling like I ghosted on them. But really, it was me overgiving in some ways, not putting any boundaries, not being completely honest with what my needs were in the relationship because I was trying to be a good friend, trying to be a good person, trying to be unconditionally loving and giving. But the truth was there were needs that I had in these friendships that weren't getting met. And so I learned that by getting burned. So with this friendship with Danny, from the beginning, we made commitments and we offered invitations And it wasn't just smooth sailing. There were things that we had to work through and that we continued to work through in our friendship. But speaking the truth, speaking our feelings as soon as those things arise is really important because resentment is insidious. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love what you've talked about right now. And there's a reason why I love it. Because 
I believe all relationships need to be nurtured. Mm -hmm. And most of the time, our focus goes to nurturing a relationship with our kids or Mm -hmm. with our partners, like love partners and so forth, sometimes with parents. And I've never had anybody talk about kind of similar but different principles when it comes to friendships. Mm -hmm. Like we never really, I have never set up agreements in my friendships. Uh It has maybe happened as a, byproduct of, you know, having a disagreement yes. and then going, you know, you did this, I did this. Let's not talk about, let's not do this this way next time. Right. But it's not an explicit agreement. It's more uh, acceptance. Yes. And I feel like there is power in acceptance, of course, but the power in what you just shared is is so much more. And if we could look at friendships, not... Because as you're saying it, I'm going, wow, all my friendships or most of my friendships that are long-term are long-term from my childhood. Mm -hmm. And as a child, we built friendships slightly differently. We we didn't even know what agreements are. We didn't know what these things mean. And if yes, your friends that are that long time, they really know you and Mm -hmm. they can tell you and they will tell you because they're like... Dude, like I've seen you in all versions of your life. I've seen the good, the bad, the ugly. Let me tell you, that's bullshit. That's not you, right? right. And that's how my friends are with me that are that right. old as friends with me. But the ones that I'm making now as an adult, I can race that so much faster by doing simple but so mature and so beautiful things that you just mentioned, not only as female, even as guys, mm-hmm. is to say, hey, would you like to have a deeper conversation? Let's sit down mm-hmm. and talk for like an mm-hmm. hour or two. Mm-hmm. Two hours of straight up one-on-one talk is a lot deeper than five months of friendship, I would say, or maybe even 10 months of friendship, maybe even a year of friendship, because you've actually gone to some place. In two hours, you're not talking surface. It's not possible, right? Right. You've talked about, like even in the podcast, we've gone so much deeper because we're talking more than 20 minutes, Mm -hmm. right? And in a party, you talk for five. Of course, you're not really deep friends with the person that you meet at every party Mm -hmm. because you never really sat down and had a deeper, more meaningful conversation. So just a simple tool like that or a simple tool like saying, what's our agreement? Right. How do Do you Do we have an agreement about this or do we have an expectation about this? That's really important to unpack. And then knowing yourself because it's easy to say, okay, here's the menu of what I want for friends and I'm going to order this. Are you being the type of person that attracts and magnetizes that level of friendship? We have to look inward to say, can I sustain that? Do I actually have the tools? So there was many, many years of reading everything. I mean, my background's in psychology and I'm really fascinated by relationships. So I did a lot of work on attachment theory and attachment styles and kind of finding out what are my regular defense mechanisms and relationships and can I bring some waking awareness to those things so that when I'm experiencing them in real time, I'm actually conscious. I'm not just falling into a program. And this came up with my friend Danny, maybe five, six months into our friendship. Because of course, friendship, just like a romantic relationship, has like a honeymoon phase where you're just like, wow, this person is so great. I want to spend all my time with them. And so we were talking daily something, a text, a phone call, supporting each other in day-to-day life. And as is what happens with love, love shakes all the scorpions out of the carpet, right? It brings our stuff. It agitates it to the surface to be healed, to be looked at, to be surrendered. So I had all of these things coming up in my life separate from her. But because we were all in a constellation now, they were going to affect her and her things were going to affect me. So suddenly we have these things that we're working through personally and 
what happened for us was that as far as attachment styles go, and I, I know I'm not like the biggest fan of labels, but I think some of these frameworks really help us to understand and simplify. I, again, was more of the avoidant style. So I'm really uh, delinquent at texting back because I really value my alone time and my freedom. And I create a lot of energetic boundaries around that. So if you don't know that about me, you could just think I'm an uncaring friend until you understand that my life is very clearly and intentionally constructed this way and that you can actually love that thing about me and for me, then we're going to have a little bit of a rub. So what happened with Danny was she is super caring, super responsive, and comes with her own set of her relational traumas from her childhood, and I come with mine. And so sometimes my responses when I would need to go into a little bit of a processing hole, she would think something is wrong with our relationship because, well, why is Hallie not texting me back right away? And how did that feel for me on the receiving end? She'd check in because she's a caring person, say, hey, are you okay? I haven't heard from you. And then because of my lens that I'm primed with, I'm going, oh my gosh, I'm feeling suffocated. I just need space. But I'm not saying that at first, right? This is the unconscious pattern and this is how people self-sabotage the relationships. I'm just like, oh my gosh, Danny is texting me and all I need is space. But that's when I get to turn inward and go, oh, you know what? I don't actually think that I've expressed to her that the way that I process when I'm going through something is to really pull back, remove all the stimuli, all the sensory input, and just really get to the core of the essence of me and figure out what's going on and what I need. Huge growth point in our relationship. And it was not easy to say. And how do you tell someone you're feeling suffocated without blaming them for that feeling of suffocation? right? Because it wasn't her. It wasn't her actions. Her actions provided the stimulus for my response. But if I don't take that opportunity to then be responsible for my response, then we're losing this huge growth opportunity. So that's what we ended up doing is I mustered up my courage. I got in integrity with myself and I let her know that I was really grateful for her care. I was really feeling her care that I was noticing feelings of anxiety in my body because I felt propelled to respond to her because I didn't want her to worry. I didn't want her to think something was wrong. And that that feeling of being propelled to respond to her was actually not what I needed right now to be in the process I was in. What I needed and what I wanted was her blessing to go into my process. And so she received that really well. And we were able to take our intimacy to a new level because we were both willing to be seen in our vulnerability of our experience. Beautiful. This is such a great topic and so different because uh, we never or usually never get a chance to talk about friendships generally. Mm. Like just, I, I don't even know if that's the focus of your work generally, mm. but mm-hmm. I think it's an important piece that I feel we may have some version of crisis around, mm-hmm. at least from the conversation. It's not quantitative data I have, but qualitatively, right. as I speak to individuals, I find either people have a lot of friends and they're able to have deep, meaningful friendships with them. They have a few friends sometimes and have a deep, meaningful friendship with them. But there are a lot of people that are just 
alone mm -hmm. and doing life by themselves or they are so attached to just their family that the partner becomes the savior, the, the person they went to, the person mm -hmm. they would share all the joys with. And this is one person that is to be the best friend and the best partner mm -hmm. and the best parent and the best mm -hmm. this and the best that. And I feel it is... Um, it is kind of a crisis in a way because we're not humanly, it's just not very possible to do. Mm -hmm. And we're not putting enough attention towards not networking, but friendships, mm -hmm. like real friendships, not just superficial. I know this person, I know this person, which has become so much of the Instagram world that we live in. So yes. who knows who? Mm -hmm. Instead of, hey, is this a friend? Will I show up for this person? Will they show up for me when we really need each other and if we need each other every day? Like, will they stick with me in the crisis and in the shit that I'm going through in life? And I right. think we don't have that. Mm -hmm. or, or, or I'm hearing that we don't have that as much as it should be the case in in a relational world that we live in where probably one of the biggest and the most important things to us is love. Mm -hmm. And friendship is love in mm -hmm. a way. It, it completely is. Yeah. It's so an expression. what I'm curious about is what's your book about? Because you said you <laughs> wrote a book and I went into this tangential <laughs> conversation with you. I have no idea what the book was about. And I want to know more about your podcast as well. Mm -hmm. Our listeners are coaches. So they would love this conversation that mm -hmm. we had because this gives them a new understanding of friendships as well. So thank you for that. Yeah. But I would love to know what your book was about. Did you just finish writing it? Yeah, I just finished writing the first draft. It's called Giving You to You, The Gift You've Been Denying. So it's an amalgamation of a lot of harrowing life stories. I'm 32 years old. I feel like I'm 70 sometimes <laughs> just with the amount of life experience I've had living in different places, having different wild careers. You know, I was a celebrity nanny for a while. I was an elementary school teacher, kind of uh, dropped everything to be an entrepreneur and start my own product company. So I did that for several years in the startup scene in New York City. And then I discovered plant medicine. I moved down to Costa Rica. I lived at an ayahuasca center. And it was during that time that basically I was just stripped away. Everything that I thought I valued and loved was shown to me for what it really was. And I basically feel like I was reborn. I started anew. And it was during that time that I felt inspired to start a podcast. But at the time, I was... And I say this because I want people to know what's possible because it's so easy to sit on these podcasts and talk about how fantastic we're all doing, right? But during this time, I was clinically depressed, suicidal, struggling, struggling to connect to why I wanted to be here on the earth. And I was so poor. I was living in so much scarcity, but I was hiding it. Nobody would have ever known that I... At certain months, I couldn't pay my own rent in New York. So I would rent my apartment out to strangers on Craigslist or whatever, Airbnb. And I would ask my friends if they needed a plant sitter while they were in Europe. And I would stay at other people's homes. I was packing orders for my product company out of the trunk of my car. I had decided, and it wasn't because I wasn't qualified to do pretty much anything that I wanted to go after. I had all the heart and the intelligence in the world. I had just left a nannying job that, you know, I, I would think I was making 75000 a year just nannying at that point, but I didn't want to do it anymore because it wasn't in alignment with who I was. So I went from that 
to barely being able to put food on my table and pay my bills. And I would take a tutoring job here and there or a babysitting gig. And I'd make sometimes $75 a week, sometimes $250, just enough to cover my rent. And it was during that time where I was just really down in the trenches that I got a lot of insight as to what's really going on in the inner workings of my mind and my emotion and learning to steer in the middle of intense, intense emotional (laughs) upheaval and chaos. And then I go down to sit with ayahuasca and I did 13 ayahuasca ceremonies in one year. And it was during that time that I got the inspiration to start podcasts. Now you can imagine you go down to the jungle you drink what is considered to be one of the most potent psychedelics on planet Earth. And through that, in a ceremony, I had this voice saying, you're going to podcast. And I thought, this is ridiculous. This is some delusion. This is, I don't know what this is. And I tried to shove it away. And the impulse just, it was so strong. It was just like, it lit a fire in me and I couldn't shake this idea. So I said something to my mom. I said, mom, I went down, I drank this ayahuasca and I had this feeling I'm supposed to start a podcast. She's like, you have to do it. I said, I don't know anything about podcasting. And let's be real, people don't make money from podcasting is what I said to her. And she's like, it doesn't matter if this is what your soul wants to do. This is what you need to do. And I am so glad that I listened to her advice because if I had gotten tripped up in my scarcity, making $75 a week and thinking, oh my gosh, why the heck am I going to start a podcast, which is going to take all of my time and make me no money? I never would have done it. And now this is, you know, two years later, my life has completely shifted. I wasn't coaching when I started podcasting. The coaching came out of people literally reaching out from listening to the show being like, hey, how do I work with you more deeply? So that just organically, and this is what I want to say is because in the coaching industry, there's so much about funnels and strategy and how to get the right sales copy. And I'm telling you, in a world where where people are starving for authenticity and connection, it starts with you. It starts with you being connected with your own truth inside yourself. And that is so magnetic and delicious. I promise people try that. They're going to watch all these magical connections start to come to fruition in their life. So I'm not sure if that answers your question. It does. It does. It does. It does. And thank you for saying what you just said towards the end, because that's one of the big challenges that as a trainer for coaches, mm-hmm. I experience all the time mm-hmm. is because there's so much noise and hoo-ha around funnels and right. advertising and, you know, doing the best content and reels and all of that. All of that till the time it's aligned with you is perfect for you. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But if it doesn't align with you and if you do it because it's a strategy and that's the way to get successful, like you said, I can show you a person that is just aligned with them. Yeah being wildly successful, doing none of it. Yep. It, like literally none of it. Exactly. They do, like I know so many coaches that have don't even have a social media account. They're like, I don't need one. Exactly. Right? And and they're really, really, like really financially successful, emotionally successful, family-wise success. True success. Like right. absolutely no issues with money. 
no social media presence. Exactly. You would, you've not heard their names, but I know them. Like, I personally know them. I'm like, wow, you're crushing the game. Yes. And they're probably not feeling weighed down by all the no. stuff that social media brings. Yeah. I was telling you about the retreat that we just held. And so my friend Danny, she homeschools her children. She's not a coach. She's not in this industry at all. She's a highly wise person. You know, she doesn't have a big social media following. And a lot of coaches who are maybe going to co-host some retreat with someone is going to be looking for somebody who's like, oh, okay, they're, they've got a great presence. They're going to draw a bunch of people in. I was like, this is my best friend. I want her to shine. She's never done a retreat before. I know she has it in her. I know she's going to change women's lives. That was so organic and authentic for me. I was not driven by what her appearance was in the world because I know this woman. And for me, when we started talking about this retreat, it was just, you know, I mentioned it a couple times on my podcast. I invited people to get in contact with us, gave no details really about what it was going to be, just said where it was going to be and that it was about healing the sisterhood wound and that if you were really seeking connection with other women, you kind of felt like you'd reached this point in your life where you'd done a great deal of your own personal work and were desiring for someone to meet you, then this was the experience that we were creating and we were sharing it based out of our story. The retreat completely filled without me posting a single Instagram feed post about the retreat. We did not have a website. It all filled via word of mouth and this inspirational energy. We got on calls with every single woman. We were honest with them. I think this is an experience that would be aligned. There were people that we got on and it was like, you know what? I think I know of another experience that might be more of what you're looking for. We weren't driven by the money. We were creating an experience that was so sacred and important to us. And because of that, the feedback that we've gotten, you know, we're planning two more retreats for next year. Most of the women are like, let me put my money down. I want to come back. And these were women who said, oh, this is a bit of a stretch for me. You know, this is more than I feel like I am used to giving and being with them in that process, coaching through that process with them letting them decide, you know, not convincing people those heavy, heavy sales tactics just to close the sale. It's, it's really unfulfilling. In, in, it's unfulfilling. It doesn't in, work. No. It honestly doesn't. Not in our world. It works maybe if you're selling a car or something. You're not selling a car. You're mm -hmm. selling transformation. Mm -hmm. You're selling somebody to be in your space mm -hmm. because they are in your space. They're in your energy. Yes, you, totally. So you're not selling a bunch of, you know, feature sets. That's where I think that's where a lot of education comes from. And if I was selling an oil, then maybe that was a good idea uh, because they would want to know if this paraben-free or not. Right. But if I'm buying <laughs> right. something from Haley, yeah. I want to be interested in what you have to say. Right. If you're buying something from another coach, you want to be interested in how it feels like being with mm -hmm. them. And if it feels right, you are going to say yes. You're right. going to figure it out, right? right? It's not those tactics. And right. anybody who's successful knows that over time. The people that we, the, the challenge I think is because when you're a marketing person, mm -hmm. and I've been a marketing person mm -hmm. in my life, so I understand marketing. I can mm -hmm. see through it in five seconds. I know exactly what the person is doing. Right. <laughs> but when you see marketing in the world, what you think is that's how you become successful. Right. But there's an observation I had, had stated this a few years ago uh, to some of my friends and also on one of our YouTube videos. I like, watch the people that are most popular right now in the coaching and watch them three years later. Mm. They will not be there. Mm. And they're not. 
Mm. Right? Because they went on to the next thing. Mm -hmm. Because all they were was a big gimmick. Mm. A lot of them are not there. Mm -hmm. Like people who were like, oh, rah, rah, everybody's listening to this guy who teaches you webinar. <laughs> that guy is teaching webinar, but to a different industry now. Because mm -hmm. guess what happened? They were not actual coaches. Mm. They were people who knew how to sell a webinar. Right. And they made a webinar to sell you a webinar. Right. And now they moved on to the next industry to sell them the webinar that they that's right. the only skill they have. Right. Is to sell webinars. They're right. not transformation people. They're right. not here to change the world. They're here right. to tell people how to do webinars. Good for them. Right. But don't follow their advice for long-term success. Right. <laughs> right. right. Absolutely. Follow their advice if you want to learn and become better mm -hmm. at webinars, if that's what yes. you like doing. Yes. It's okay if you like doing that. That's good for you. Go do that. Mm -hmm. If you don't even like doing that, yeah. don't do it. You're yeah. going to feel burnt out. You're going to disappear. That's what happens. And that's why so many coaches recently, it's just so much. I'm so happy to hear it in some way <laughs> because like, yeah, I'm into crypto now. Yeah, I was like, yeah, because you were never really a coach, weren't you? Mm. You were just following a trend. <laughs> and so next friend is crypto. So right. let's follow crypto. Now right. they're crypto experts. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, chill out. Like, mm. don't listen to such people. Listen mm. to people who are actually doing the work mm. for years and years and you will see they're authentic. They're mm. not trying to manipulate mm -hmm. you. They're not trying to sell you some snake oil. Mm -hmm. They're always going, hey, listen, this is what I have. Yeah. If it works for you, good. If it doesn't, good. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to convince you right. to do something that you don't right. want to do. Right. I don't have to. I don't want to. Right. Yeah, that authenticity. That authenticity. This seems to be really thematic of what we're talking about today. Authenticity in coaching, authenticity in friendships. And you asked about my podcast. So my podcast is called The Thought Room. And one thing that a lot of people asked me is, oh, you're such a great interviewer. How do you ask great questions? Which even that question is so sweet to me. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's like, how do I connect with people is what I really hear in that. And I don't, I'm, I'm going to assume you're the same way. I don't prepare questions, right? I don't write down questions and then go ask them because that would completely cut off the energetic reciprocity, the organic back and forth of the conversation. So I think what people are really asking me is how do I be present? And I like to practice when I'm listening to someone, just noticing if a thought comes up that makes me want to interject into what they're saying. And do I tune out? Do I stop listening? I'm sure we've all had experiences of a time where we were sharing something that was a little tender or heartfelt. And then we finish sharing it and the person says something very generic. Mm. Oh, that sucks. Yeah. Oh, you can feel your own energy just get a little embarrassed and fall flat because they, they didn't meet you there. They were potentially just waiting for their opportunity to talk about themselves, mm. right? That's what we find in a lot of these surface level friendships is we're... To use a gross metaphor, we're just kind of jacking off egos all over mm -hmm. each other to just mirror it back to ourselves and we're not actually interested in deep relating. So when I'm asking questions, I'm looking into someone's eyes. This really is a great tip for coaches too. I'm tracking the person's body, their nervous system. I'm tracking how they're breathing, how they're blinking, how they're moving. When I ask a specific question, do they shift uncomfortably? in their seat? Have I gotten to an edge? If I have, how do I hold that edge for them? Not necessarily going to steer people into their immediate worst trauma or fear, but I go, ah, okay, that there's something uncomfortable here. Sometimes I might even say, I noticed this when I asked this question and just pause and wait 
for the person to respond, giving a lot of space in between questions too. Just allowing what organically arises inside of your own body from your own heart to be asked. Beautiful. And it's funny that you start with the story of you don't prepare questions and I don't prepare questions. And I actually got to that point because when I first started doing this podcast, (laughs) it was called something else. What was it uh, called? It was called the Ever Coach Podcast, which is one of our brands. And when I was doing interviews, I was preparing. I was like, okay, let me research everything about this person. I'm going to ask the Mm -hmm. the right questions. And the intention was good because I wanted the person to be the hero. Like I I want them to shine. What's the best way I can make them shine? Also, I wasn't confident and I didn't know if I would be able to interview someone well enough and, and so forth. So I started like that. And I realized, I think it was episode like 20 or something. And after that, I was like... This is the most boring thing I do. <laughs> like this is the day that I regret when I have to do a podcast interview because it's so boring because mm. I'm always thinking about the next question I have to right. ask because I have a list to go through right. and I have like limited amount of time to go through it. And I just stopped doing it. Yeah, I just stopped it. I just called off the podcast. <laughs> like I'm not doing this anymore. It's too boring. It's like I'm not engaged. I don't know why I'm doing this. It's not, I don't want to do it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Until... I realized that I really like talking to people when I'm just talking to them. Mm-hmm. And a lot of my friends would say, I just, that's a really good conversation yeah. I had. Like I had fun just talking. There may or may not be a takeaway, but it was a good conversation. You know, yes. we had a good time. We talked about something that we haven't talked about or we talked about something that is just interesting to both of us. Like right. both of us learned something new. Right. I was like, what if the podcast was just that? Right. What if the conversation was not preset to anything. Mm -hmm. It was just whatever comes and whatever shows up and how we show up for it, right? right? Which is why when you sat down, usually I would tell people before they sit down, I would simply go, hey, listen, Matt will just hit record whenever we sit down because we're just going to roll, right? right? I'm not going to do, oh, today I have blah, blah, blah on my (laughs) podcast doing blah, blah, blah. I I don't do that. I just go, hey, we're going to have a conversation and conversations organically happen like this. You you sit down, you meet someone and you talk and then you talk and it can go anywhere. Like I had no idea we'll talk about friendships (laughs) or we'll talk about the authenticity in podcasting or authenticity generally. None of that was pre-decided. We haven't even talked ever since the last experience (laughs) and uh, it's basically Nita telling me, hey, have you got Haley yet on your podcast? You would love her. She's mm. awesome. I was like, oh, let's mm. let's reconnect and let's let's talk to you and see if you could make it. And you yeah. could. But we haven't spoken in months, I would I know. say, right? Probably. Yeah. yeah. So so that's what but what I found now is like I love this mm. because it could go anywhere. Right. But it's going to be honest. Right. Your story resonates with me so much. In the beginning of my podcasting journey, I had a very similar experience. So to take you back, I'm still living in poverty. I'm keeping all of my podcast equipment in this black backpack that I'm just taking on the subways with me and just trying to get these interviews. And I fly to Costa Rica to do this plant medicine work with ayahuasca, have all my podcasting gear there and was working with this center, Soltara. And they offered for me to do a social media exchange. Why? I don't know because I had no social media presence. It is truly one of those miraculous things where you're just meant to do something in life and an opportunity opens up. And that's what this was for me. So basically the agreement was the guests and influencers that were coming through the ayahuasca center as part of their contract would sit down with the resident podcaster, which was me, Mm. who hadn't even launched the podcast yet. 
So it was just me collecting these recordings of people's transformative stories. And that's if people go check out the thought room, that's what the first 10 to 15 episodes are, are people having experiences with plant medicine and overcoming their trauma and telling their stories. Oftentimes the day after they drank this very potent psychedelic, the heart's blown wide open and they're crying and it's just deeply engaging. So newbie podcaster down in Costa Rica now have all these prominent people coming to the center who are supposed to be interviewed by me. And I'm like, wow, how do I show up for this? Had people like Dorian Yates, who's like an eight-time Mr. Olympia, very famous bodybuilder. He was coming through. Had Luke Story. Like, I know Luke. Do you know Luke? Damn. Yeah. And I, Luke knew me before I was doing this and he was just so sweet giving me podcast tips. And actually, I got to interview Luke the day after he did ayahuasca and he told a beautiful story about his journey from rock bottom of drug addiction to, you know, where he is now. This is back in 2019. And then I had Dr. Dennis McKenna coming on the podcast, which for those who are unfamiliar with this realm, Dr. Dennis McKenna is a famous ethnobotanist and ethnopharmacologist. And he's the brother of Terrence McKenna, who was really, really a pioneer in the new psychedelic movement before his death. And so anyone who knows Dennis McKenna, he's kind of a legend. And so how I was preparing for this interview was... I watched Dennis McKenna and Joe Rogan, you know, like Mm -hmm. that's what I was going to do. And I was taking all these notes and I was coming up with fascinating things to say. And I was paying attention to what the most exciting stories that Dennis told were. And this was the turning point for me. I remember I went into that interview and because I was paying attention, like we talked about, I was looking into his eyes. I was tracking his subtle body movements. After a while, I became aware that this sweet, sweet old man, you know, he was answering all of my questions, but he wasn't alive to them. He was answering them because I asked them, but that's different than asking a question that somebody is excited to answer because he's been doing this for how many years, saying the same stories, telling the same spiels. And here I was asking him to regurgitate the same stuff he'd always said. So a light bulb went on. And that was the day I said, I'm not preparing questions ever again. From now on, I'm showing up and I'm being authentic and I'm going to ask questions that arise organically from inside of me. The next one that I did was Dorian Yates. And you know, he's got over a million followers or something on Instagram and he's famous for bodybuilding. Here's me. I don't give a shit about (laughs) bodybuilding. So how am I going to show up authentically In this conversation, I'm not going to ask him questions about bodybuilding. I ask him questions about his family, about his journey, about coming out of poverty, about his experiences with psychedelics and plant medicine, which is the side of him that a lot of people have never heard about. And the result, it's one of my favorite interviews to this date. And we have people commenting on YouTube, wow, this is the best Dorian Yates interview I've ever seen, simply because I showed up as me. Beautiful. Beautiful. That is such an inspiring story also for anybody that wants to do anything really. You could use it for podcasting. You can use it for coaching. You can do it for any content. You can do it for anything. Is to take that permission and lean into you. 
Mm. Right. To lean into. To give you to you. Yeah. Give you to you. Uh uh, Now I see. (laughs) Yeah. Now I see it. Now I see. When does the book come out? Um, Next year. Next year. Cool. We'll we'll probably have you back at that time to talk more about the book. I would love that. But this was a phenomenal conversation, Haley. It was super fun to talk to you. Thank you so much for bringing all of you today to this conversation. I'm sure everybody's going to love it. Thank you, Ajay.